Perfect. And you all doubted him. Um, no, thank you, Mike. You're good. Alrighty. Well, so we're in Genesis. We're discussing origins. We're discussing how God created the whole universe and everything that we see around us. Um, and chapter one, it dealt with all the primordial stuff. It dealt with all the stuff that God calls to be and then slowly formed it into something. Um, now in chapter two, we deal with more of that creation and the order of it and how God did a little bit more. Um, in particular, uh, that's what actually we see. We see the particulars. Um, we see the creation of man in particular. And so with this, we're going to go ahead and jump into uh, Genesis 2, starting with verse 4. Now these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the heaven, earth and the heavens. Um, the first verse we encounter begins the next section of Genesis. As we see, it begins with, these are the generations. This phrase is used throughout Genesis to describe certain genealogies. Uh, we see it with Noah, with Abraham, with Isaac, and etc. The Hebrew term is toledot. What scholars notice is that when this phrase is used, it is not focusing so much on the individual person who comes um, at the beginning, but it comes at the end of the genealogy. Thus, when we have Abraham, it gives us all the names up to Abraham and then his story. The same is with Abraham to Isaac. Thus, this gives us some evidence that these verses are focusing on what happens next rather than what happened previously. That said... We see something interesting occur, which is that we first encounter the covenantal name of God in Genesis for the first time. So far in Genesis, whenever God has been said, it's been the somewhat generic term for God, which is Elohim. Now, however, we find that what the ESV translates as Lord God. The Lord, in all capital letters, is the covenantal name for God, which is Yahweh. And God is Elohim. Thus, we are seeing that the same God of Israel is the same God who created the universe. And now we're going to read a few more verses, 5 through 9. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil." At this point in the story, we receive the first of what some may call a problem between Genesis 1 and 2. That is, both seem to be telling a creation narrative. Because of this, some scholars have held that these are actually two different narratives that were brought together by some editor. And we talked about that at the beginning of Genesis, uh, the, the Yahwist and the Elohist and all of these other people who have brought it all together. But before we come to this conclusion... There are some things to note. The first deals with uh, verse 5, the very first verse. Here we see it says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant in the field had yet sprung up. 
Some have held that this contradicts Genesis 1, which implies that the land was already full of vegetation uh, since that was created on the fifth day before man. The truth is, though, that it does not necessarily contradict. Instead, the focus on this chapter in chapter 3 is humanity. Thus, there are two possibilities. The first is that this represents the earth prior to humans being made, thus uncultivated land and vegetation. The second is that these words are a prelude to what we will find at the end of Genesis 3, where humanity will need to work from the sweat of his brow, and in this sense, this was the creation before the fall. Likewise, this does not necessarily mean that the whole earth um, didn't have vegetation, as land can be specific place on the earth, which seems to be the case here. In either case, there is no indication that there was no vegetation. Instead, there was no vegetation which was cultivated yet because man had not been created to cultivate it. And we see this similarly in our own world in the forests, for example. There's vegetation, but humanity doesn't bear much of a mark on it on the deep forests in, let's say, the Amazon. And as of yet, there was no rain. Instead, the earth was covered in a mist, or uh, as others might translate it, a fresh subterranean river, which would rise and water the land. At this point in the story, humanity is created. God forms man from the dust. Formed here is of the same concept as a potter. Uh, Thus, as a potter forms his mold, so it is with God who carefully forms humans from the earth. The fact that it is dust continues the theme of God using source material in order to further the created order. Thus, he begins by creating the heavens and the earth, and from the formless void that is originally created, he then forms it further. Here we have the same concept. God breathes the life of breath of life into man, causing the man to become a living creature. The breath of life has a variety of meanings. It could simply mean life itself, or even go so far as indicating the human soul. In this context, however, it seems more realistic for it to simply mean that the human body literally came to life by God's inbreathing. Um, from this, God plants the garden in Eden in the east. This can have a few different nuances. Some have argued that in the east can represent the abode of God. Uh, Thus, the garden in Eden in the east would be an area designated for humanity where God dwelled and they could dwell with him. Though others argue that it is merely a garden east from where the writer was originally hailing from, thus from Israel or Arabia. Regardless, the point of the garden is to be a dwelling place for humanity at least, and at most a place where God and humanity would have interaction together, which seems to be the case especially. Regardless, man is placed in the garden. But the garden is further described. God placed within the garden trees and plants that were pleasant for sight and good for food. The pleasant for sight implies that this was an aesthetic quality to the Garden of Eden. It was a truly beautiful place. As for good food, it reminds us that God is the provider for his new creation, which is man. He brings man not only to a place that is safe in Eden, but also a place where he will be nourished. We also find in this section a brief mention of the two trees, especially in the midst of the garden. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
When it comes to the tree of life, it was a common motif in the ancient world for humans to seek eternal life. As per the Epic of Gilgamesh, for example, that was written a long, long time ago. Here, however, it seems to be a tree that would give rejuvenating properties to the one who ate from it. Thus, the one who ate from it would have an extended period of life, and assuming they continued to eat from it, they would have eternal life. The better question, though, is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're going to look at that later. (laughs) We're going to take some time. We're going to debate about that and discuss it um, when we get to Genesis 3, since that's a very important part of that, that section. Finally, throughout these verses, we again find the term Lord God. It reminds us with verse 4 that the covenant name for God, Yahweh, is being used together with the more generic name for God, Elohim. In this way, we are to see that the God of Israel, again, is the same God who is the master of the universe, who created humanity, who created the garden, and placed man within it. All right, now verses 10 through 14. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. We have what is a brief interlude in the text to describe the water source of Eden, which is a river. The river itself is then described as from Eden, dividing up into four rivers. Each of these rivers are named. The first, the Pishon, and all we are told about it is that it flowed around the land of Havilah, where there is good gold and precious gems. Unfortunately, we do not know where this river was or where this area of Havilah is. Um, And so because of that, scholars just aren't sure. Likewise, the second river, Gihon, is also a mystery. The fact that it flowed around the land of Cush doesn't help as there were seemingly two Cushes. Um, The first was what later became Ethiopia under Egypt. And the other is east of Mesopotamia. So they're basically worlds apart at that point. Now the other two rivers, however, are still well known. The Tigris is described as flowing east of Assyria. It is likely this represents the city of Asher rather than the whole of Assyria, which would actually encompass both sides of the Tigris. The fact that the Tigris is considered east of Assyria shows how old the tradition was since the capital of Assyria was originally located east of the Tigris until it was at last moved to Nineveh, which is on the western side of the Tigris, not the eastern. The Euphrates is also mentioned, though not specific. Along with the Tigris, the Euphrates still exists, um, flowing from Syria, now in today's terms, into Iraq, whereas the Tigris flows from Turkey into Iraq, and they both come together near the Persian Gulf. Alrighty, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. At this point, God places man in the garden. Some have held the belief that the Garden of Eden was a place where man and eventually woman lived without working, or a life almost of hedonistic 
leisure. Um, sometimes you ever think like animals brought them food and they just lounged all day long. That's how you kind of picture Eden, the Garden of Eden. That's not the case. Um, as we find in this verse, that's definitely not the case. The point of them being placed there was to work and keep the garden. Uh, just as we find at the beginning in verse 4, how the world was uncultivated, now humanity is involved to cultivate it and to keep it. Likewise, another understanding is that of guarding, which goes into the idea of humanity being the vice region or the steward of the garden and of the earth. Now we are given the command from God. The second in these verses to describe God as Yahweh God. Uh, the commandment is simple. They are able to eat of every tree in the garden. This reminds us of the previous verses and God's providence for his creatures, especially for those who bear his image. The command, however, comes with a negative as well. While they are allowed to eat of every tree in the garden, there is one which is forbidden, and that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they break this commandment, then they will surely die. This phraseology is used often in the case of royalty. When a royal threat is delivered on a person committing a crime in a kingdom, as it is, we see that same kind of threat or warning here. If mankind breaks the rule, then they will experience death. Uh, one more verse. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. We're actually not going to comment on that today. I just wanted to leave you in suspense um, for next week. Like, who's he going to create? What's going to happen? Pretend you don't know. Um, Still, the main point. The main point of these particular verses describe the in-depth creation of man. Once man has been created, God also planted a garden in the land of Eden, which is to the east. The garden is meant to be the perfect habitat for man. The habitat has the provision that man will need to thrive. Thus, God brings man to the garden with the purpose that man would have a purpose in obedience by working the land, keeping it, and in some respect, guarding it as a vice regent. Along with this is one prohibition to man, that he shall eat of every tree but the tree of the, gar of the knowledge of good and evil. That one is off limits. All right. And this leads us to some application points. Um, provision. As we consider today's text, there can be little doubt over what we find God accomplishing in this chapter. The creation of man, his forming, and breathing life into him would be enough for humanity to be forever grateful. Yet we notice that God does not only give man life, but also gives him great provision for him in this life. In particular, we see how the whole setup of the garden was specifically created as a place where man could live and could essentially thrive. It was not a place where hedonism would abound, as though man would live lounging around while, again, animals fed him grapes and various fruits. Um, no, instead we find a garden, which is to be tended to, taken care of, it is created by God for man, and as such, man has a responsibility in the garden to take care for it and to cherish it. Still, there can be no cherishing of the garden if God did not first provide. This is something very interesting about what we find in the scriptures as opposed to what we find in pagan myth and even in modern naturalism. 
For the pagan mythologies, humanity was often created as a means for the gods to have rest. They were created to be used by the gods so, uh, to work so the gods wouldn't have to work. Likewise, in modern naturalism, man has no special place in the world, and instead is just a byproduct of even more byproducts of what would they would deem as chance. As we see in the text, though, the scriptures show that the purpose of the garden was for man, not the other way around. Man is not created in order to work so that God would no longer have to work, but instead we find a reflection of God himself in us. The first chapter of Genesis detailed the work of God and concluded with this final masterpiece, which was humanity. It should not surprise us then to find that work is part of who we are because we are created in the image of the God who is a working God. Just as God created and worked on the formless void, so man was called to work on what God had created, to cultivate it, keep it, to work it. It was not that God needed man to do this, as though God couldn't keep it up or work it himself. Instead, it is a way for us to remember our place as image bearers of God, that man was called to do something in the world in which he had made. So we see more provision than perhaps we would have originally thought, don't we? Not only does God provide a safe place where man can grow and learn, not only does God provide a garden which grows food which will nourish him, not only does God provide the river which man can drink, but also God provides a purpose for man. It would be one thing if God simply created man and said, Now, go, live. But instead, God gives a man purpose to glorify his maker through obedience in keeping and working the garden which has been made as a habitat for him. One of my favorite quotes from the Westminster Catechism, um, the very first question in it is, What is the chief end of man? And the answer is, To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is our purpose on the earth. There are so many who believe in lesser purposes. To collect wealth, to have stuff, to be famous, to live a life to the fullest, to see the world. So many different purposes, so many different desires and goals. And yet the greatest of them is to glorify God, to be obedient to Him, and to seek to hear at the end of our lives, not a list of things that we've personally accomplished or achievements or how much stuff we've attained, but to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. To spend a lifetime of service to our God is our purpose as Christians. Does this mean that we won't see the world or that we'll live like hermits and have nothing? Of course not. We can have things and have desires, but the whole purpose of this life, what gives us our purpose in our beings is to glorify God. In Christ, we are able to seek to do that which we were originally created to do, to live a life of obedience, service, and to glorify our God in all areas of our lives. From work to relationships to using our gifts for His glory, whether it be in creativity or business, whatever is in our lives, devoting it completely to God. So it is, our God does not only provide us um, physical needs, 
but also so much more than this in providing for us purpose with our lives. Our God is a God of provision, not only for some aspects or some wants or even some needs, but for all the needs, including our deepest needs, which is purpose. If you show me a human without purpose, or who doesn't know what their purpose is, then I will show you a human with great sorrow. Is it possible that this is one of the main reasons for our culture's dependence and constant seeking of purpose? Is it possible this is why, um, one of the reasons why, so many congregations even struggle so deeply in understanding their role in the broader culture because they have lost sense of their purpose? Is it possible that individuals within the church are so tired, exhausted, and in need of so many self-help books because they have forgotten or have not been told that their greatest purpose is to glorify God, seeking obedience to Him, to be faithful to Him? If that is you, I want you to cast off those chains of purposelessness. I want you to open your eyes to the fact that you have a purpose in all that you do. And that is to glorify God in all that you can do. Come what may, whether sorrow, joy, feast, or famine, this purpose can remain with you and it can be the foundation you need to overcome all the world may throw at you. In other words, you're not purposeful, purposeless. You are not here by accident or chance. You are here because you have been wonderfully made. Created with a high and mighty calling to glorify God, your Father in heaven. God has provided you the purpose for your life. Seek to honor him then by remembering that you do have a purpose. Alright, along with the clear provisions we find in this chapter thus far... There is something further, another kind of provision, so to speak, which is what we find about the God of all. I was waiting for something like that to happen. <laughs> um, and that is that God is a lawful God. In this text, we see a command given to man by God himself. The command is simple. You may eat from any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is really the only clear rule given to man at this time, and that it is a rule which must be obeyed. The ramifications are clear and present. If man were to eat of the tree which God had commanded him not to eat from, then he would surely die. He would experience death, something which man had not encountered, and presumably would not ever encounter, assuming he continued to eat from the tree of life. Now, we don't need to go too far about what this means, or what man does, and the repercussion, because that's for chapter 3. We're going to wait for it. Instead, what we notice is something about God himself. And that is that he is one who is lawful. Now, the question we want to ask is, what does that mean? What does it mean to be lawful? What does it mean to pronounce a law? What is the purpose of a law? Well, a law is meant to regulate. It's meant to be a rule for society. Thus, in our own country, we have laws. We are not, for example, allowed to simply murder someone on the street or to steal their purse from them. 
We are not permitted to blatantly lie in court. If you notice, many of our laws actually deal with morality. We are not permitted to break laws, unless apparently you're wealthy or famous. I kid. But no, laws are meant to help society flourish because we know that complete liberty only leads to complete anarchy. And ironically, this ultimately leads to no liberty. Don't believe me? Well, consider what would occur if our country were to get rid of all of our laws. So, no more laws anymore. It would mean anyone here could go into the store and rob it without repercussion. It means that if your friend is murdered, then the murderer would get away free. Why? Because there would be no law to bind them. Thus, complete liberty without law really does lead to anarchy and ultimately leads to no liberty because when there is anarchy, there is no freedom. For then we are bound to lawlessness, which would be the new law itself. Thus, we find a law from the beginning, a law which is necessary. What if God had not given the command to Adam? What if there were no law in the Garden of Eden? What would it tell us about who God is? It would tell us that God is not concerned with what is right and wrong. It would tell us that God is not truly concerned about order. In fact, it would go against, in a way, everything which we had known about God from Genesis 1 until now. For in those chapters, God is clearly a lawgiver, regulating animals to certain kinds, placing the water so that they would hold in their place, and the land that it would hold in its place. Just as the creation has order, so does mankind. We are ordered in regards to our own kinds naturally, but we are also ordered in regards to morality, to what is right and wrong, what is lawful and unlawful. Unfortunately, many have forgotten this very fact. For many, morality is something which is subjective. What is right and wrong is based upon personal preference. For the Christian, however, we recognize that our morality has an absolute standard, and that's God himself. When we see God then making this law, we are seeing him as the absolute standard of morality and law itself. How do we define what is a good law and what is morally good? We look to God. He is the standard. He provides the standard. So when we consider God being lawful, it should not cause us to quiver in fear. Instead, it should help us recognize that law is a good thing in its own right, for it teaches us about the lawgiver, who is God. Is there a possibility of breaking the law if the law is given? Of course. For we do have some measure of autonomy. But that does not mean that the law is bad any more than it means that the lawgiver is bad because we can break the law given. It simply means we have responsibility with our freedom, with the small amount of autonomy we have been given, to do what is good and pleasing to the Lord. And if we should fail... We can know God is always ready to catch us in his grace as well. As we continue forward in Genesis, let us not forget to remember who this God is that we're talking about. He is the great lawgiver, the one and only standard. 
As our society continues to try and tell us that good and bad is relative, let us stand firm knowing that good and bad can be properly defined because we know the source of all good, which is God. God is the foundation for these things, and this foundation is truly strong. I should have mentioned that today we're going to have a shorter sermon. I felt so bad last week. We just kept going. It was like the Energizer Bunny. (laughs) Didn't even run out. Um, But no, I decided to split this week's and next week's sermons up because otherwise we would have been here longer than even last week. Um, Still though, you know, the question is, does the gospel of Jesus shine even here at the beginning? Does the gospel of Jesus, uh, can it be found at the get-go, at the creation of mankind itself. Now, I would say yes when we look at the whole of the gospel. And in the first aspect of the gospel is, in fact, our origins. There can be no gospel if we don't exist. As it is, we do exist. And we were created by God for a purpose. And that is important for us to remember. Purpose. That word. You know, so many people live their lives without it. So many people go day to day without having any true purpose to it. And truthfully, it's a sorrowful existence to have no purpose. To wake up every morning with a sense of, I don't even know why I'm waking up today. There's lots of people who feel that. There are times in depressions when even Christians can feel that way. When our purpose can kind of slip through the cracks because the devil or sin can come in and kind of break us. But as it is in the origin story that we're discussing, when we talk about humanity, we see that humanity, you, have purpose. Don't let anything take that away. The fact that you are wonderfully made by God for a purpose, is something which we should grasp and hold on to every day. Because if we let it slip away, it'll ruin us. And in this, we also see the fact that, okay, in this Genesis narrative, that the purpose is given for obedience. That we have a choice to obey. That to cultivate the land as, as Adam's role was, to fulfill that role. Now, Adam, he's created in the image of God, therefore he has enough freedom to not do what he's supposed to do. (laughs) We're not there yet. We're going to get to Genesis 3 and we find that he does not do what he's supposed to do. Adam does, in the end, break the rule. Not only Adam, but Eve. And along all this, we have that serpent, that nasty, nasty serpent that we're going to discuss and what that means. And so we have the fall in Genesis 3. We're not there yet, but we're getting there. Um, And with the fall, Adam experiences death. And death, which was not originally the intent. The intent for man was that they would continue to obey, to live in the garden in peace with their God. But that gets ruined. And they experience that death. And then for the rest of the Bible... (laughs) You have, what does God do to fix it? 
What does God do with this created humanity that is made in his image, that is his masterpiece? And when God says, look what I have done, universe, he points to you and to me. What is God going to do now that it's fallen and it's cracked and it's a little scarred? How's he going to fix that? I mean, he could just not fix it, destroy us all, but he doesn't do that. He does something which is kind of unexpected. He shows grace and mercy for thousands of years. He gives a law further to show who he is. And then he himself fulfills the law through Jesus Christ. And then Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. That because God came down and he lived as a man in life, in death, and in his resurrection, we find redemption. And all the sacrifices which we are supposed to give is fulfilled in one act of God. How wonderful. How glorious. And that's how we are redeemed. Through Jesus Christ. And then all that leads to us going back almost in a a weird way to the beginning. Do we remain faithful and experience the life that we were supposed to have? Or do we not? And experience the death which we deserve. That's always the question that is at the forefront of humanity. But as it is, God made a way. God made a way for us to get back. To open up the gates of Eden again. And Jesus Christ is the one who opens it up. So as we continue forward in Genesis, let's remember that there's a whole story which is being told to us. And it starts with our origins, yes. But it's going to lead on to these different areas that affects us profoundly. Had not Adam and Eve fallen, who knows what could have happened. Unfortunately, we can't really know. (laughs) We only know what happened. Um, But still, we can learn. And so we thank God for teaching us exactly what it is that we can become through his son, Jesus Christ, who redeems. And it's with that that we go to Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ. And even before the coming of Jesus, thousands of years before he came to redeem us, there was this man who was created in your image. And Lord, you taught us in this story that he is not only created in your image, but he is also given a place to dwell which will nourish him. And that he is also given a purpose to glorify you in obedience. And so Lord, teach us. Remind us that we can get back to that state when we too can be obedient to you, faithful to you, to live for your glory. And that is through your son, Jesus Christ, through his death that allows us to get back to this place. We thank you for all that you have accomplished, starting with the beginning. And we ask you again to keep on blessing us as we keep on seeking to be faithful to you. For you are worthy of all of our lives and all the faithfulness we can muster. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn today. Double click on that one. Yep.
I thank you for coming out today to worship together as a community of believers. And I pray that God's blessing would fall upon you today and that you would remember your great purpose to glorify him in this life. May you go out in his blessings and in his peace. Amen. Yeah, that's how I messed up the first time as well. At the very beginning, I was like, oh, wait a minute.